Medic 43, District 1, Engine 51, Response, Cardiac Arrest. Hello, everybody. Welcome again to another edition of the MCHD Paramedic Podcast. This is Dr. Casey Patrick, and joining me today is my medical director, Rob Dixon. Good afternoon, Casey. And as with many of the MCHD Paramedic Podcast topics, this topic was born from uh, re-education, clinical department discussion, you know, real-life education needs here within Montgomery County Hospital District EMS. So this one wasn't one that I pulled out of out of the air. This is one that our professional development lead brought me and said, hey, I need some vent edu- education for a medic. Where can I find some? And I said, oh, go take a look at the podcast. He was like, yeah, I did. There's no episode. So I bought myself some work. That said, this is a topic that we've discussed in bits and pieces throughout the past three or four years within CE, within the podcast, within various educational offerings around MCHD, but we've never summed it up. So we took input from Dr. Dixon, from all the folks here in the office, and put this episode together, and hopefully everyone will will get something out of it. And it forced me to think about how we approach the ventilator in the emergency setting. And so let's get a quick disclaimer out of the way off the top. Anytime that the vent discussion comes up in EMS or in emergency medicine, I'm lumping myself in here. So first off, I'm not trying to dumb down ventilator management. So for those of you out there that want to learn about advanced vent weaning and ICU settings, have at it. But I acknowledge myself up front, I am not an intensivist. I don't have pulmonary critical care training. I don't wean patients with ARDS. That's exceedingly difficult. That takes years and years of experience to know how to do with finesse, right? What I want to do as an emergency physician, what I want our medics that are listening to think about in a little different concept is we're not weaning ARDS. We want to prevent ARDS, right? We want to take the patient, use the ventilator as the procedure that it is. Think about indications, contraindications, and ways that we can hurt people with the ventilator. First, do no harm. So caveat two, I'm talking specifically to 911 ground-based medics. So there's obvious caveats here for HIMSS folks. So if you're a HIMSS listener, you're going to transport patients that are already on complex vent settings. So your need to understand those settings are greater, greater than mine, probably, right? Because even in the emergency department, I don't want to speak for you, but I'm not using complex vent settings in the ED, right? I'm starting out with with lung protection. I'm in AC mode. My patients are paralyzed, and I'm trying to stabilize the patient to get them to the intensive care unit where the true expert can take over. Chime in. Anything you want to add there? No, I couldn't agree more. I mean, that's spot on. This is, uh, I mean, this is the the title of this is First Do No Harm. So this is kind of basics um, for people that really are just in that first period of care with the patient. It gets very, the the discussion gets very, very complex going down the road into things Dr. Patrick was talking about, like weaning people off vents and uh, complex ARDS ventilation patterns is something just out of the scope of this talk. Sure, and I apologize if that initial lead-in was a bit of a rant. I don't want it to be that. I just listen to even even vent lectures to emergency physicians. You know, we start to get into 
you know, complex mode. You know, it's, it's gotten infinitely more complex since I trained, you know, 15 years ago. Uh, but, you know, I'm not even something like PRVC. I'm not putting somebody on PRVC in the emergency department. You know, I mean, and, th and there are certain ED sites. If you're an emergency physician listening out there and you hold your patients in the ED uh, for 12, 24 hours that are ICU patients, you may need to be aware of those. Thankfully, in the settings where I work, I don't hold patients in the ED that are admitted to the ICU for much longer than, you know, two, three, four, five hours. And realistically, I'm still working to stabilize them at that point, not to start getting fancy with vent settings. So let's start off with some basics. Uh, why is mechanical ventilation risky? Yeah, mechanical ventilation, we have to remember, right? It's a positive pressure system. That's not natural to us. Normally, we inspire via negative pressure thanks to the diaphragm and the intercostal muscles. And also, in normal physiology, our vocal cords are not propped open with a tracheal tube. Our normal oxygen concentration is 21%, not 100%. So we're really making the, changing the physiology when we put someone on the ventilator. Once the patient's on the ventilator, pneumonia and aspiration are real risks uh, with mechanical ventilation. Hyperoxygenation, another risk, is bad in almost every clinical scenario. SANS, you know, CO uh, intoxication, uh, pre-oxygenation prior to the uh, intubation attempt, and denitrogenation, that type of thing. Yeah, and, and, and lastly, mechanically induced pressure volume is dangerous, if too high or if too low. And that's, you know, that's the source of, of ventilator-induced lung injury. So, you know, high pressure, high volume high oxygen concentrations, you know, just aspiration risk, all those things, all those things are real and all those things can make mechanical ventilation harmful. Yeah. So can we start with the basics, Casey? Can you take the listeners through some of the terminology? Because I know that's what confuses me a lot of the times. Go go through what are, what's the, the, the terms here? So when I've taught this in the past, the easiest way to approach it from my standpoint, and if you have other ideas, teach this differently hit the podcast email because this is always a, a tough a tough topic. I, I like to approach it as here are the things we can control, right? These are the things that we have a knob or a button or a switch to turn on or turn off. So first and foremost, we've got to start with our mode. And the most basic mode in you know ventilator technology is CMV or continuous mandatory ventilation. And in continuous mandatory ventilation, the trigger or what sets off the breath is time. And the target in volume controlled CMV is volume. We don't use pressure control ventilation here at MCHD, so we're not going to go into that. But the gist is instead of targeting a volume, i.e. 500 milliliters, a pressure is targeted. And whatever volume gets the patient to that pressure is what is forced into the patient. So that's target that's triggers. How does, how does CMV work though? Well, you set a rate, you set a volume, and a patient gets that breath at that interval, period, the end, no matter what they're doing. They could be breathing, they could be not breathing, they could be awake, they could be paralyzed. So realistically, you know, CMV is not set or used on many ventilators anymore. It's, you know, rather archaic. Our actual vent setting here at MCHD is assist control. So what's the difference? in assist control and CMV? Well, actually in a paralyzed patient, which we use you know, ketamine as our primary sedative here for the DSI process, patients hit the hard stops of 94% oxygenation, 90 systolic blood pressure, then 
rocuronium is our paralytic, which as we know and we've discussed before, length of action, 45, 60 minutes, even longer, depending on the physiologic state of the patient. So for our transport times, really, even if you're out in Dobbin or, you know, down in Porter or someplace out in the corner, way out, you know, Magnolia, someplace in the corners of the county, 1,100 square miles that we have. If you get rocuronium in the field here at MCHD, by the time you get to the hospital, 99.99% of the patients are going to still be paralyzed. So if the patient is paralyzed and they're not taking a breath, AC is CMV. The trigger is time. The target is volume, period, the end. So what does AC add? AC adds that if the patient attempts a breath, then that breath is sensed and then a controlled full tidal volume is delivered. So it's full support. And in all honesty, in the emergency setting, that's what we want. Again, we're not trying to wean people. We want full support. Now, we don't want awake patients getting full breaths in an asynchronous manner. That's, again, a little bit off topic in that for our medics listening, your patients are gonna be sedated. They better be sedated. They're gonna be paralyzed. And from that standpoint, it all falls back to CMV anyways, and we want full, full ventilatory support. So that's number one, the modes. And again, I didn't bring up SIMV. I didn't bring up PRVC because those aren't modes that we use here. And realistically, in a sedated, paralyzed patient, one more time, everybody is going to fall back to ACCMV. So move on to things we can control. Number two, the volume. This is my, my favorite. This is the one that um, we can do the most good with and if we misuse probably the most harm so hit the high points yeah, there for the listeners more. the important take-home point here is to use a lung protective setting remember too much volume too much pressure can cause ventilator uh, initiated lung injury and progress that's the the kind of evil stepbrother of ARDS it progresses to ARDS uh, this is likely much more complex than the ARDSNET trial led us to believe, but the safest approach is to use ideal body weight based tidal volume. Now, I, I always like to say that my ideal body actually lives in the one that I have. <laughs> and so I think that historically in my practice, I've seen people way overestimate uh, this eight to 10 uh, cc's per kg of ideal body weight. So here at MCHD, what we did years ago when, when we first brought in lung protective ventilator strategies to the service, is we looked at those ARDNET tables and came up with a very close approximation, which is your, your height in feet minus 1.5 times 100 gives you your ideal uh, body weight or very close to your ideal body weight. Remember, if the end tidal CO2 is climbing and I need to increase my minute ventilation, how do I do that? And that's going to lead us kind of to the, the next part of this, which is the rate, the respiratory rate. Right, so we don't want to turn up the tidal volume. We want to set it and forget it, Casey. Yep. And remember, feet minus one and a half times 100 is going to give us an approximation of the ARDSNET lung protective tidal volume. So things we can control, one is the mode, number two is the tidal volume, number three is the respiratory rate. And just like our simple tidal volume calculation, we tried to make rate setting as simple as possible. We don't want a bunch of adjustments here overarching theme for me is that the more knobs you turn on the vent, the more likely you're going to hurt someone. So I'm not, again, trying to dumb this down. It's just like when you start sprinkling ingredients into the recipe and you keep sprinkling and you keep sprinkling and you keep sprinkling. Does it ever end up tasting very good? Not usually. The simplest recipes are the best ones. 
So 10, 20, 30 is our rate guide here at MCHD. And we'll start with the high end and work our way down. 30 breaths per minute is for presumed metabolic acidotic patients, right? Metabolic acidosis um, with compensatory respiratory alkalosis, especially prior to intubation, we want to be thinking about this. And the common players, the common killers here in this scenario is DKA, excited delirium, uh, sepsis patients that are severely acidotic. And how do we recognize those patients? We recognize that low end tidal as a reflection of that compensatory uh, respiratory alkalosis. And just thinking about the clinical picture of the patient, blood glucose high, tachycardia, nausea and vomiting for three days, uh, dry mucous membranes. Yeah, and tachypnea, right? Yeah. You're going you're gonna to be looking at this patient. They're, they look incredibly ill. And the number one thing is they're tachypnic. And that, that is to blow off that CO2. It's the main, main compensatory mechanism. Remember, early is the lungs, and then later is the kidneys. Right, and if we're in a metabolic acidosis state, the lungs are going to dump all of the respiratory acid they can, which is your PCO2. So that's going to reflect in your end tidal. So if you have a DKA patient, you know, diabetic, out of insulin, blood sugar high, end tidal's 19, respiratory rate's 40, you don't want to put them on the, you know, innovate them. We don't want to if we don't have to. Maybe use BiPAP, use another uh, modality. But if we have to, for various reasons, we surely don't want to set them at a rate of 12. They need that PCO2 of 18 to compensate for all the keto acids floating around. So that's your metabolic acidosis setting at 30. If you've got normal lungs, hitting the head with a baseball bat, opiate overdose, things like that. Lungs are normal, but we've got to ventilate you for altered mental status. We're going to hit 20. And 20 is also the fallback for, I'm really not sure. Could it be obstructive? Could it be normal lungs? You know, I'm not, I'm not sure where this patient falls. We hit 20 in the middle. And then on the low end, 10 breaths per minute is our rate strategy for obstructive lung disease. And in these patients, we're deciding to manage their airway. We're not worried about hypercapnia and CO2 narcosis and altered mental status in these patients. Why? Because we're sedating them and paralyzing them and resedating them, right? So we're going to tolerate that hypercapnia in exchange for increased expiratory time that's provided by less breaths overall, which is going to prevent breast stacking. And how do we recognize breast stacking? You know, I was taught to look at the, the flow volume loops on the ventilator, which I still don't know that I know what it's supposed to look like or what abnormal would look like. Again, take the easy route. We've got an excellent surrogate there, and that's our end tidal again. And if you see that end tidal, stair step upward, climb, climb, climb upward, and you hear a high pressure alarm, think about breast stacking. And what can we do in that situation? Well, there's several things. Number one, our medics do an awesome job. I hear this probably once every two months. I unhooked the vent, I unhooked the bag, and I bear hugged them. And I just emptied all the pressure and started over at a lower rate. Um, secondly, you can turn down the rate. So little I to E interlude, everybody likes to talk about changing the I to E ratio. And that's one of the knobs that my compadre over here gets a little bit uh, verklempt about as doing more harm than good. So let's just think about turning the rate down and how that affects your expiratory ratio. So normal I to E is one to two. So at 20 breaths per minute, you have one breath every three seconds. And if the inspiration to expiration ratio is one to two, then you have one second of inspiration and two seconds of expiration with each breath cycle, right? But if you decrease your breath per minute, your respiratory rate from 20 to 10, you now have one breath every 
six seconds. So instead of having one second of inspiration and two seconds of expiration, you have two seconds of inspiration and four seconds of expiration. So you double your expiratory time just by halving your rate. So before you go messing with IDE and changing it to one to three or one to four, which if you're in a breast stacking situation, I'm okay with, but think about turning that rate down first and understanding why that increases your expiratory time, just because it lengthens, it lengthens it. It's a much simpler way to get to the same outcome. So mode controlled, volume controlled, rate controlled. Talk a little bit about PEEP. I took this one because everyone is sick of hearing Dr. Patrick use his doorstop analogy, but it's really true. I mean, I talk about this all the time to students and to our medics, but when you think about where the gas exchange happened, it's in the alveoli. And so you want the alveoli open, number one, so they can exchange gas. So PEEP really does a couple things. It keeps those alveoli recruited because you want as many of them as you can for gas exchange, and it props them open. That avoids that injury of the door opening and closing and opening and closing and opening and closing. That's that micro trauma, which can lead to ventilator is, uh, initiated lung injury and ARDS. So you can titrate this up if they're hypoxic. We use it along with the uh, oxygen concentration to, to help with the oxygenation side. Remember that the rate kind of controls the, the um, CO2 or the, the ventilation side of the respiratory cycle, but if we have an oxygen problem, then we go with the uh, oxygen concentration or the PEEP. Remember that as you go up, though, this can compromise the preload of the patient, especially in our COPD patients. Uh, mm -hmm. Less is needed for these obstructive uh, lung patients that already have increased pressure. So kind of the things that we have talked about and reviewed, you know, the the uh, modes, the volume, set it and forget it. The respiratory rate, thank goodness Dr. Patrick uh, did the math on that one. It always messes me up. I am a firm believer I stay away from the I to E. I've had sick asthma patients. I turned down the I turned down the rate. I buy myself some more time. Why we have PEEP, remember it recruits alveoli and it really helps in decreasing the risk of ventilator initiated lung injury in these patients. So let's move on to the next one, oxygen or to uh oxygenation and sedation cases. So last three things that we control, and we'll take these in a bundle. So thanks for the, the review there, the four so far. We'll finish with the last three, oxygenation, sedation, and position. Those are the three other variables that we control in a ventilated patient. Oxygenation, we want to use PEEP, use the FiO2 if we are hypoxic. But remember, the flip side is we want to wean as soon as possible as well. Too much of a good thing can always be bad, right? I love, I love a cupcake. 12 cupcakes, probably no good. The old focus and the old idea of they're on the ventilator, they need to have a PO2 of 480 and an oxygen saturation of 100 because I can get it there. Go back to episode 31, hyperoxygenation episode where we focused on this. There's a new study, seems like every three months, COPD, sepsis, stroke, post-arrest. You name the intensive care unit condition. If you make their PO2 400, these patients have worsening outcomes. So we want to target 92 to 96, right? Not 100%. So while you're pre-oxygenating and denitrinating, absolutely. 100% O2 for three minutes. If you got a CO patient, 100%, period. Those are the two exceptions. Otherwise, target that 92 to 96 range. We also control sedation. And while sedation isn't directly related to the mechanical ventilation 
knobs and process in general, if you've ever tried to ventilate mechanically a patient that's awake or asynchronous or fighting the vent, whatever you want to call it, it's, it's like riding a, a, a bull at the rodeo. It's tough, right? So first and foremost, an awake and paralyzed patient is 100% forbidden. And we'll talk about this on future podcasts, but there's been some fairly eye-opening emergency department data around this awake and paralyzed phenomenon. So that's why here at MCHD, we have a sedative dose for the delayed sequence resuscitation portion of intubation prep, and then a second dose of ketamine that's absolutely positively required after we place that patient on the ventilator. Very simply, the half-life of ketamine is much shorter than the half-life of rocuronium. And the last thing that we want is an awake, paralyzed patient. We also don't want an awake, unparalyzed patient on the vent either because they can definitely get very asynchronous, difficult to match up rates, and that's a job for the intensivist, not for us in the ambulance or even in the ED setting. So two milligrams per kilogram IV ketamine after intubation, that post-intubation dose is 100% required. And then lastly, position. You know, that goes back to the fact we've got a tube now propped between the cords. They're propped open. We don't want aspiration to occur, so we want to make sure the patient is at an incline. You should already be intubating with the head up anyways, right? 15 to 20 degrees at least, right? So keep them there. That's going to prevent aspiration again, prevent ventilator-associated pneumonia. Gravity works. It's simple, cheap, and free. You know, I've heard the uh, supine position in relation to airway management term the position of death. And this is just one other reason why that's true. Yeah, one of the things I see pretty commonly is that we're all excited. We've, you know, finished the intubation, kind of the adrenaline goes down. We put the patient on the ventilator, especially if they're a bigger patient and they have, a, a, in our obese patients, what happens? They're not ventilating well as they're laying on their back, right? They have all this goo that's kind of sitting on their diaphragm that we're trying to push down, right? We're trying to positive pressure, uh, ventilate their lungs. And they have, you know, 100 pounds of extra, you know, gut sitting on that, resisting that. And so I've seen probably at least half a dozen times we're all super happy. We hook the patient on the vent and the patient becomes hypoxic. We're wondering why is the patient becoming hypoxic? And a lot of that's positioning. Yep. Take the chest wall and the abdominal girth out of play. Sit them up. Prevent ventilator associated ammonia. Better mechanics as well. Now, you may be saying to yourself, this is an ICU problem. Why are we worried about all these complications and ARDS? You know, I'm a paramedic. We don't, we don't see that. And while we don't see it in the truck, we don't see it in the ED. You know, we've talked about uh, lung protective trials and lung protective uh, research here on uh, the paramedic podcast in the past. We'll link the study in the show notes, but there's good evidence that starting lung protective strategies earlier in the ED saves lives. There's no reason why we shouldn't extrapolate these simple tasks to the truck. Even if we never show from a prospective randomized double-blinded controlled trial standpoint, this is one where logic tells me we should be trying to start this as early as possible. So let's move into some of the can't miss ventilator problems because we talked about the seven things we can control. With the discussion now, and let's talk about the things that we can't miss once we put the patient on the ventilator. Yeah, first and foremost, as Dr. Patrick just alluded to, you don't want an awake patient. You certainly don't want an awake paralyzed patient. Dislodgement, obstruction, pneumothorax, uh, equipment failures, or, or in my experience, it's really, we just didn't hook it to the wall. Equipment uh, disconnection. 
and alarms, whether they're high pressure alarms or low pressure alarms. So those are those are kind of the list that I go through. And I think to go back to the top of that list, how do we identify the awake patient? And I think there's a bunch of different ways you can do it. And I'm going to go into a couple of them. So sympathetic surge, when you think about it, the awake patient has a tube that's propping open their vocal cords. It's very uncomfortable, very distressing for patients. They have a big sympathetic surge. Um, So what are we going to see with that? We're going to see increased heart rate, increased blood pressure. You may see coughing and bucking the vent, asynchrony, which is when the patient's, the ventilator's trying to give a breath and the patient's trying to breathe against the ventilator. Not terribly comfortable at all. So any coughing, bucking around, moving, kind of equals asynchrony. And I want to touch on a myth that we've seen here a bunch of times. You know, here we're giving ketamine, which uh, gives you a bronchorrhea and can increase your secretions. And what other secretion is increased with that? It's tearing. And so many times we see providers look at a, a patient's tearing or tears coming from the eyes and think, well, the patient must be waking up. I need to give more sedative. Not true, right? It's likely, likely most of that tearing that we're seeing is a side effect from the medication we're using to intubate the patient. That said, we want to make sure that we use our initial dose to pre-oxygenate, to procedurally sedate the patient, to do the procedure of pre-oxygenation. That's delayed sequence intubation. Second dose is 100% required. You get the patient on the vent, you get them settled, you give them a second dose of ketamine. Brachyronium lasts longer. That's a given. Now, the third and the fourth dose, that needs to be time dependent, right? Not based on tiering. Now, if you're coming in from Dobbin, way out halfway to College Station, you very well may need to give a second and a third dose of post-sedation ketamine because you're looking at a, probably a 15-minute or so half-life there. So if you've got a 45-minute drive, you know, a second and a third dose may be needed. Don't dose every two minutes because you see tearing. I think that's, that's, the, that's the edge that Dr. Gixon's getting to. And when we think about how we recognize that awake patient, that heart rate and that blood pressure increase, you need to notice that one regardless of if they're paralyzed or not because that sympathetic surge is going to happen whether the rocuronium is in action or if it's not in action. And it can be a clue from some of these other things that we talked about, dislodgement, obstruction, pneumothorax, some equipment failure. So let's pivot to that and talk about our dope mnemonic or dopes. We use dopes here to add stacking to that. So dope stands for dislodgement, obstruction, pneumothorax, and equipment failure. And then we add the S on the end to cover breast stacking. Remember, that's when you're putting in more volume than the patient can exhale. That gets uh, more and more and more with each ventilator cycle until the high pressure alarms are going off, the patient's not doing well. Again, just to run through it one more time, dislodgement, D, and that's the tube's out, the tube's kinked. It is what it says. Obstruction can be a mucus plug, can be a kink in the tube, uh, can be, you know, anything that obstructs along the pathway from the ventilator to the tip, into the tip of the tube, you know, above the carina. Pneumothorax, we got our stethoscope. Let's listen. Also, how other ways we could recognize pneumothorax, high pressure alarm, right, because it's going to become infinitely harder to bag if you've got a lung down. And then lastly, check your equipment. And in my experience, just like Dr. Dixon said earlier, most of the time that's the oxygen tubing laying in the floor. And then we've hit, we've hit on breast stacking, going to be more common in the obstructive lung disease patients. Use your high pressure alarm paired with that stair stepping upward in tidal CO2 pattern. What about a low pressure alarm? And usually that means that something's disconnected because the pressure of the lung has gone away, usually disconnected at the ET tube 
or that you've got a two balloon malfunction. So check your expired tidal volume values. That's one way you can look for two balloon burst. If it's low, air is escaping before it gets into the lung. Remember, I've seen a couple crash situations and catastrophes by folks getting overly worried about a ruptured tube. And trying to change out a tube a perfectly in a perfectly well oxygenated patient. Remember, this is a austere emergency setting. So ask yourself before you do any procedure, is it really necessary that I do this right now in this setting, or is it safer to temporize the patient, go to the hospital, and do it under a more controlled setting? So let's say you hear a tube leak, you're 15 minutes from the hospital, you notice that you're expired tidal volumes are low and you look at your monitor and sats 97 96 95 96 heart rates 98 and blood pressure's 130 that's the patient where yeah the tube may be ruptured and you may you know go to the bulb see if there's pressure in the tube bulb if there's not if the patient's hemodynamically stable that's one where i've just seen disaster strike by folks trying to change out a busted tube without proper preparation. And realistically, in that situation, you've got to start over and DSI again. I would much rather that happen in the controlled environment of the ED as opposed to on the side of the road. So summing it up, how do we not harm the patient with the vent? Because that's really what we want to do. We want to use the ventilator as an extension of us to allow us to do other tasks while we're transporting the patient, other post-intubation tasks and standardize that tidal volume. That's really, that's really the goal of the vent. So how do we not harm people? Number one, add its adequate sedation, period. That's number one. Number two, proper tidal volume. That's lung protective. Number three, don't torpedo a compensatory respiratory alkalosis. Rate for 30 in the metabolic acidosis patient. And use your clinical judgment and recognize those patients beforehand. Wean the oxygen. We don't need 100% FiO2 the entire time with a PaO2 of 500, right? That, that is toxic. We want to shoot for that 92 to 95 range and then know your dopes. Dislodgement, obstruction, pneumothorax, equipment, and breath stacking, right? Remember that a properly sedated and paralyzed EMS patient defaults to CMV regardless of what mode you pick if you're in a, a volume-targeted situation. It's going to fall back to a time trigger because the patient's not going to inspire if they're paralyzed. If you're sliding on ice, what do you do? You turn into the skid. You don't whip the wheel in three directions and pull up the emergency brake and press the gas at the same time and uh, change gears and fiddle with your rear view mirror. You make one single move and you let it happen. Wait, same thing with the recipe. You don't add 20 things when the recipe calls for 10. Keep it simple when we're managing vents. The more knobs we turn, the more modes we trial, the more adjustments we make, the less we know where we started and the less we know what's working. And I've just seen in my experience, and you can speak to this before we wrap up, I've seen people get in much more trouble by over-adjusting and overextending their area of expertise as opposed to keeping it simple. I'd say more lives have been saved with a bag and a BVM mask than have by a ventilator in the history of humankind. So chime in and we'll wrap it up. Yeah, couldn't agree more, Casey. I mean, there's a lot of potential guys to do harm with these ventilators. So uh, we're not trying to dumb down this topic, uh, but more, more than that, to really emphasize that, you know, this is really a patient safety issue. 
period. And this is a procedure. And if you're going to perform a procedure on a patient, you need to know the basics, the indications, the contraindications, and the warning signs, the anatomy and the physiology. Same thing for, you know, needle thoracostomy, same thing for intubating a patient, same thing for using ketamine and rocuronium. The ventilator needs to be approached and thought of the same way, and our end goal is to first do no harm. Yeah, couldn't agree more. And thanks to Captain Wells Whitworth for bringing this up and, and helping with this one, the whole team here in the clinical department. It's a great discussion. Perfect point to wrap us up. As always, thanks for listening. If you have questions, concerns, email us at the podcast email, podcast at mchd-tx.org. As always, please, if you're listening out there, leave us a review wherever you listen. Uh, we, we like to hear our feedback, and it helps us get out there, get more visible, get more listens. As always, thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you again soon. This podcast was brought to you by the Montgomery County Hospital District, Texas. Production and editing by Andrew Adams. Questions or comments, which are always welcome, can be sent to podcast at mchd-tx.org. Make sure to subscribe above to keep updated to all our future casts. Music, copyright, Kevin McLeod, and Competech.com. Licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0.